Amen. What a great God is the God of all the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and the savior of all who will look to him. My, what a gracious thing he has done in sending his son, Jesus. Well, this evening, we're going to focus on another attribute of God. We looked this morning at God's self-sufficiency, and tonight we'll be looking at God's sovereignty, beholding the God of sovereign supremacy. I'd like to, to begin with a definition. I think it's just helpful to have clearly in mind what it is we're talking about, and then take a look at a few passages that, to, that to help us understand the general idea of divine sovereignty, and then we'll focus most of our time on Isaiah chapter 45 in those early verses that are just remarkable as a case study, as it were, <clears throat> in God's sovereign control. Uh, the one who raises up Cyrus, who has not yet been born and names him, and uh, the things we learn about God in that great passage. And then uh, following that's uh, a few application points that I hope will be helpful to all of us. So definition, some passages, and then some application of that. So first of all, <clears throat> I, I would uh, define divine sovereignty this way, that God plans and carries out his perfect will as he alone knows is best over all that is in heaven and earth, and he does so without failure or defeat. God plans and carries out his perfect will as he alone knows is best over everything in heaven and earth. And he does so without failure or defeat. And really what you see in the, in the doctrine of divine sovereignty are two elements that are really important to, to understand. And we'll see these in these passages that we look at. One is that God's sovereignty is exhaustive. It is over heaven and earth. It, uh, it covers all of the universe. And of course that includes <clears throat> the nations of the world and all that takes place in human affairs. But his, his sovereignty, although it is, is uh, general and uh, comprehensive, exhaustive in that sense, it is also meticulous. It takes care of all the details that, that happen in all of life, down to the smallest things that occur, to the largest events in the universe. God is in control. He plans and carries out his perfect will exhaustively over all that is in heaven and earth, and he does so in meticulous detail. Now, one passage where I find this just beautifully taught is, is a remarkable passage because it is spoken by a pagan king who has been chastised by the Lord. The corrected, chastened Nebuchadnezzar says this of the Lord. He says of God, this is in Daniel chapter 4. You need, need not turn to it right now. You can just listen. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Nebuchadnezzar says this, For God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of the heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Well, if you think about that statement of divine sovereignty, you realize that Nebuchadnezzar is affirming of the sovereign control of God that it is, first of all, eternal. It, it is 
uh, in everlasting dominion from generation to generation. It is a sovereignty that is victorious. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now, that's an interesting phrase. If you were here this morning, we heard something very similar in Isaiah 40. But the meaning of the, in the two passages is different. In Isaiah 40, when he talked about the nations as nothing, it was in relation to what we could give to God that would make him better or enrich him. And the answer is nothing because he has it all. <coughs> Excuse me. Here in this text, however, when he says all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, he means it in this sense. They are unable to thwart the will of God from being done. How, how do we know that's the case? Well, listen to the whole statement. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will. So what can they not do? In what sense are they nothing? They cannot thwart the will of God, but he does according to his will. So he, his sovereignty is victorious. And then third, the third characteristic here is that his sovereignty is extensive. It is over all that is in heaven and earth. It's everlasting, victorious, extensive. And then no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that what have you done is not an innocent, humble question of someone asking God, why is this happening in my life? I, 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 I don't understand what's taking place. It's not that kind of a question. It is a question with an accusation attached, a finger pointing at God saying, what have you done? No one can say to God, what have you done? Because his sovereign control is just. The Lord of the earth will always do what is right. So it's an amazing statement by a pagan king who has been chastened by God and now sees God for who he is with an everlasting dominion, a victorious sovereign control, an exhaustive sovereign control over heaven and earth, and a just sovereignty. Another passage, just to let me mention to you, that helps us understand generally what sovereignty is in the Bible is a very short verse. But, oh my, is it amazing what it says. In the first chapter of Ephesians, you may remember that Paul begins to unpack a number of the blessings that God the Father has brought to us in Christ. In verse 3, he had said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he begins to enumerate those blessings. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. And he predestined us and so on. Well, as you work down the list, here is one of those blessings that God the Father has brought to us stated in verse 11 of Ephesians 1. Paul says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, the main point he's wanting us to, to uh, embrace there and, and take hope in is the fact that God has granted to us this inheritance, which, by the way, uh, Paul mentions 
three times in Ephesians 1. So obviously this is a big deal. This is something very important to him. That is all the riches of Christ, the blessings that come to us from the work that Christ has done on our behalf. That's the inheritance. So we will receive this inheritance, but then Paul wants to help us see how secure it is, how confident we should be that if we are in Christ, we will have it. So what does he do? He says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. So you might think, might think of it this way. If you can look at my hands, here's the inheritance, but he wants us to know that it is secured by predestination. So we've been predestined to have the inheritance. Well, that's marvelous, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says, you've obtained an inheritance, inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. So here's a yet bigger circle that encompasses our inheritance. A purpose to predestine us to have the inheritance. And it doesn't stop there. You've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things. Ah, so God works all things which includes his purpose to predestine us to have the inheritance. And it doesn't stop there. Ah, the whole verse says, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. So there is this decree of God, this counsel of God's will by which he has decreed or determined that there is, that he will work all things to accomplish his purpose which includes predestining us to have the inheritance. Amazing, isn't it? But that phrase that God works all things after the counsel of his will means nothing is left out. Everything works exhaustively, meticulously. Everything works according to the counsel of God's will. Some commentators have wanted to turn the all things of Ephesians 1.11 into an all of a subset Everything that is in a subset, but not everything exclusively. The problem with that is that all things is also used in the previous verse, in verse 10, where we're told that all things are summed up in Christ. Things in the heavens and things in the earth. Now, my friends, we would not want to think of all things summed up in Christ as all of a subset, would we? Are you kidding? All things in heaven and earth are summed up in Christ. So indeed, when he comes to verse 11 and uses the same phrase, we have strong reason for affirming that what Paul is saying is indeed God works absolutely everything according to the counsel of his will by which we can know that inheritance he has promised us will be ours. Well, one other passage, and the, the one we want to focus mostly on, is Isaiah chapter 45. If you would turn there again, if you had it there before. Isaiah 45. And here I want us to see a particular case study, as it were, in divine sovereignty that is very remarkable. And it has to do with Cyrus. You'll notice at the end of chapter 44, Cyrus is mentioned. 
<clears throat> Leading up to this, of course, God is declaring his control over nature. He's the one who has created everything. He's the one who causes streams to flow or dry up. Uh, he's the one who is in control over nations and all that they do. He's the one who causes the, the diviner's forecasts to fail and cause the word of his own prophets to succeed. So God is the one in control of all of these things. Now in verse 28, he mentions another thing that he's in control of, and that is this man, Cyrus. Look with me again at verse 28. It is I, says the Lord, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. He declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now, Isaiah wrote this, prophesied this, 150 years before Cyrus was born. Now, this is one of the reasons that liberals, liberal scholars, date the second half of Isaiah, sometimes called Deutero-Isaiah, this is sometimes why they, this is why they date it uh, late, because they figure, how can this prophet be talking about Cyrus if he hasn't even been born yet? So it must actually have been written later. But my friends, there is very compelling reason for understanding this to have been written by Isaiah in at least 700 B.C., even though Cyrus does not come, is not born until the mid-500s. So 150 years before Cyrus is born, Isaiah makes this forecast of him. And isn't it remarkable that he names him? I mean, just think of the implications of that in terms of what his parents, Cyrus's parents, must have thought as, as they were thinking of different names. They didn't know that God had declared 150 years earlier that his name would be Cyrus. They had no idea about that. So as they are processing names, which I'm sure they must have, we all do, don't we? Think of what names to call our children. They ended up with Cyrus. So here is a, a, a particular instance where we see that God is able to work in the minds of people so that what they choose is in fact what he has ordained. And yet they do so freely. It's an amazing uh, instance of that. You know, Proverbs 21.1 tells us that God can turn the heart of a king the way he does channels of water. Indeed, he can move in the minds and hearts of individuals so that they choose freely what he ordains they choose. So they chose Cyrus as the name of this young man. And Cyrus then grew to become the king of this mighty nation, Medo-Persia. Now, this is interesting, because when Isaiah prophesied this, Medo-Persia was hardly on the scene as a nation or a power. Rather, when, when Isaiah prophesied this, Assyria was the power, was the national power that was in ascendancy. And so what happens is God raised up Assyria to be the nation that would bring judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. That took place in 722 B.C. when Samaria was destroyed and the people from the northern kingdom, the ten tribes to the north, were taken captive to Nineveh. And then God, God brought 
brought Assyria down through Babylon. And Babylon became then the next major superpower that God raised up for the purpose of bringing judgment against the southern kingdom. That happened in 586 B.C. So, so when Isaiah is prophesying this, he's talking about Cyrus, this king who is going to enact this decree that's going to affect the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And Cyrus doesn't exist yet. Medo-Persia isn't even on the map, as it were. I mean, isn't it amazing that God is foretelling and, and foreordaining all these things that will take place? So indeed, Assyria, whom God brought to power, he brings down. Babylon, whom God brought to power, then he brings down. And he brings him down through Cyrus. Cyrus becomes the one then. He, he uh, conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., in 538, he then enacted a decree for the people who were in Babylon, the Israelites who were in Babylon, to go back into the land to rebuild the temple. You can read about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In those books, we read about the, the first return to rebuild the temple, and then the second return to rebuild uh, the wall of Jerusalem. That happened under Cyrus. And Cyrus is the one who... It issued the decree that would provide the military support and resources for the children of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and do what they did. Now, it's amazing because we see in this text that Cyrus did all this and had no idea that he was in fact fulfilling what God ordained he do. Look at the language again <coughs> in this passage. Verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Isn't that amazing? He is my instrument. I'm the one who is using him to do what I have ordained he do. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. It is, and, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. This is God is declaring Jerusalem will be built. But how will Jerusalem be rebuilt? As he uses Cyrus as his instrument to bring this to pass. And it's, it's fascinating that Cyrus himself does not even know who the God is who is using him. Look in chapter 45 verses 4 and 5. Chapter 45, verse 4, For the sake of Jacob my servant, and Israel my chosen one, I have also called you, Cyrus, by your name. I have given you a title of honor, king of Medo-Persia, though you have not known me. Isn't that amazing? Cyrus doesn't know who the true God is, and yet he is the instrument of the true God. We see it again in verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, Cyrus. A reference to Cyrus there. I will gird you, though you have not known me. So even though Cyrus is absolutely clueless to the fact 
that he is the instrument of God to carry out the ordained purpose of God to be the one through whom Jerusalem would be rebuilt. The temple would be restored. Eventually, the wall would be reconstructed. Despite the fact Cyrus was the tool of God to do this, he was clueless that that was taking place. From Cyrus's vantage point, Pastor Paul showed me a brief thing on online that is at the British Museum of the Cyrus Cylinder that, that has a, a transcription there of how Cyrus viewed what was happening here. He viewed his, his actions here as his role as the king of Medo-Persia uh, to, to show kindness to all these other nations so their gods would show him favor. So if you, if you ask Cyrus the question, are you aware of the fact that everything you're doing, God predicted you would do and ordained you would do ahead of time? Absolutely clueless to that. From his own vantage point, he was doing what he thought was best, what he chose to do, and what he chose to do freely is what God ordained he do and prophesied 150 years earlier. What an amazing account this is. Now, one more detail I want you to see. It's just, just remarkable. In the early verses of chapter 45, we see some of the details about the, the strength of the military might of Cyrus. Look with me again at, at the early verses of, of Isaiah 45. <coughs> Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand, to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and through their iron bars and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Now, historically, here's what happened. Cyrus did have a mighty military force. And it was so great that he was able to enter cities in Babylon and absolutely march through any iron gates they had and any kind of fortress that they would that they, they, they would build there, uh, his, his military force just went right through that and destroyed city after city after city in Babylon. He was so relentless in this that the king of Babylon feared that this would happen to their capital city. You remember the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world? That was built before Cyrus came against Babylon. So the king of Babylon, in order to spare their city, declared they would open the doors and let Cyrus come in unhindered in order to save the city. I mean, you might think of a city like Paris or Edinburgh. My goodness, you wouldn't want to destroy the things that are there. And, and so that's what the king of Babylon did. When you read then in verse one, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. This is exactly what happened. So the Lord worked through Cyrus to accomplish his purpose in bringing down Babylon and then being in a position where he could support the people of Israel to go back into the land. 
he decreed in 538 that they would go back into the land. Jeremiah prophesied that they would be uh, without their temple in, in, uh, uh, in, in their place of exile for 70 years. So by 516, 586 is when they were taken captive. By 516, the temple was rebuilt. 70 years, just as the prophets had said. Well, it's an amazing passage about so, so many details that are fulfilled through Cyrus. Now, let's move on down to the latter part of these verses, verses 5 to 7. <clears throat> verses 5 to 7, because here we have some summary statements of divine sovereignty that are remarkable. Some of the most remarkable, really, in all of the Bible. Verse 5, let me read 5 to 7 again. I'm re reading from the New American Standard translation. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, Cyrus, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Well, my friends, verse 7 presents to us an astonishing picture of divine sovereignty because what it shows us is that his sovereign, God's sovereign control is over everything that is good no surprise. We knew that already, didn't we? Goodness, God is the one who gives life and health and well-being. God is the one who controls everything good. But God also is the one equally who controls everything bad that happens in the world. So we read these. I think of this as a spectrum text. At least that's a name I've given to passages like this. There are many of them in which you see God asserts his sovereign hand of control over the good things that happen and the bad things that happen. Look with me again in your own Bibles at verse 7. So he is the one who forms light, a good thing, and creates darkness, a bad thing. He causes well-being a good thing, and he creates calamity, a bad thing. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, that simple observation that God is in control of both sides of the spectrum, everything that is good and everything that is bad, is emphasized in this verse in a couple of ways. If you know Hebrew, you can spot this. The first thing is this, that in both of these couplets, light and darkness well-being and calamity, both of these couplets, God through the prophet uses a weaker and a stronger verb respectively. He uses a weaker verb like forming or causing uh, in, uh, in, in, in one of the cases. Uh, and those, it's a weaker verb because those are things we too can do. Uh, it, those, are, those are verbs that are used in the Hebrew Bible for what we can bring about. The word form is oftentimes used of potters who form uh, clay into, into a pot of, certain, uh, of a certain kind. We can cause things to happen. But then there also is a stronger verb that is used here. And that verb is bara. It's the, it's the word that is used to create. 
and it is only used in the Old Testament of God. God is the only one who baras. It's the word that's used in Genesis 1.1. Barashit, bara, Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, now, you might think that if God uses a weaker verb and a stronger verb in respect to these two things, the good things that happen and the bad things that happen, you, would, you might think, I certainly would think, that he would use the stronger verb of the good things. But that is not the case. It is stunning to see what this actually says. So, what he says is, God forms light. That's a weaker verb. We too can form things. God forms light, but he baras darkness. God causes well-being. That's a good thing. We too can cause, but God causes well-being, and he baras calamity. Now, you might ask yourself the question, why would God want the language to be that way? I mean, I have thought many, many times, if God had said, Bruce, do you want to do any editorial work on the Bible here? I'd say, yeah, yes, please. I'd like to edit chapter 45-7 of the book of Isaiah and reverse the verbs. That's my intuition. Goodness, God creates light, does he not? Genesis 1, yes, indeed, let there be light. But that's the point. We already know that. We know God is the one who creates light, who creates well-being. We've got that firmly in mind from so many passages in the Bible. But what we have a harder time accepting is that God has equal control of the bad things that happen in life. So God purposely uses the weaker verb for the good things and the stronger verb for the bad things to help us see. Yes, indeed, I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, here's the second observation uh, from the Hebrew Bible, and that is the terms that are used for the second couplet. They're translated in the NESB. He causes well-being, and he creates calamity. Your translations no doubt differ a bit on that. The, the, the words can be translated a variety of ways. But here are the two words in Hebrew. He, he causes well-being. That's the word shalom. In Hebrew, it is the richest word there is to use for all that is good, for life that is prosperous and joyous, for health and well-being. Everything that is joyful and, and, and satisfying in life is captured with the word shalom. So God is the one who causes shalom. But just as that's the strongest word for everything that is good in the Hebrew language, he uses then the strongest word in the Hebrew language for everything that is horrid for the other side of the couplet. So God baraz, and the Hebrew word is ra. It's a very simple word, transliterated R-A. But if you look at a lexicon, you find that this word appears over 300 times in the Old Testament and most often translated in our English translations with the word evil. God baraz ra, most often translated evil. 
sometimes translated destruction, devastation, uh, calamity, but all that is horrid. I mean, the word raw would be used in a situation in the Old Testament when, say, an army came in and devastated a people, plundered their goods, and, 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 and left, left the city in ruins. That would be raw. That's what is God, God is declaring. He baraz in this passage. Honestly, it is stunning to see what this text actually says. Now, my friends, Boy, it is so important at this point that we pull together other Bible teaching to help us comprehend a fuller picture of what is going on here. Because you see, some people could draw the conclusion, well, if God is the one who controls everything good and everything bad equally, He's just as much in control of the bad as He is the good, then God must be both good and bad. He must be both good and evil. What a huge mistake that would be. So let me suggest to you that alongside, in fact, if you even want a pencil in your Bibles, uh, a couple other references right at Isaiah 45, 7, uh, th these might be helpful for you to remember and look at later. A couple other references that will really help us understand that though God controls both good and evil, God is good, and in no respect is he evil. So, for the first couplet, God is the one who forms light and creates darkness. Consider also with that 1 John 1, 5. 1 John 1, 5, which says, you know the verse, don't you? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So do you hear it there? Yes, God controls both good and evil. That's Isaiah 45, 7. But God is good. And in no respect is he evil. He is light. There is no darkness in him. Now for the second couplet, where God causes well-being and creates raw, creates calamity, you might consider also with that Psalm 5, 4. Psalm 5, 4, which says that God does not take delight in wickedness and no evil dwells with him. And the word evil there is the word ra, the very same word that is used in Isaiah 45, 7. Psalm 5, 4, God does not take delight in wickedness. No evil dwells with him. So, my friends, let, let me just propose it to you this way. I think there are two pillars of divine sovereignty that we must hold together, that really do help us uphold, help us see how the doctrine of sovereignty is upheld. The first pillar is the pillar of God's character. God is good, and God in no respect is evil. All that God does is good. All of His ways are good. All of His character is good. But the second pillar is this. God has absolute control over both good and evil. God, I, I am the Lord who does all these things says the Lord in Isaiah 45, 7. So both of these pillars have to be in place. And honestly, 
it's hard to hold them both in place, isn't it? Because you think if you have one, the, the tendency is to deny the other. So as I mentioned a moment ago, if you, if you have the pillar, God controls both good and evil, the tendency is to think, well, then God is both good and evil. False. Huge mistake. But usually it works the other way around. At least in, in our evangelical circles, here's how the argument usually goes. God is good, and in no respect is he evil. True enough. Therefore, God has everything to do with what is good and has nothing to do with what is evil. False. False. My friends, this text and many others we could look at declare the exhaustive, meticulous sovereignty of God over the full spectrum of human life, over everything that is good. Oh, yes, and we praise God for that. What a joy it is to praise God for health and life and, 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 and provision and all the blessings that he brings. But he is equally in control of everything bad that happens. Well, let me bring this to a close this evening with some application points that I hope will be helpful to you. First of all, come to the place in your own life where you accept God's word for who God is. Come to the place in your life where you accept for yourself God's declaration of for who God is. I, I think so many of us are so shaped by the intuitions of our culture that we cannot read the Bible and accept it for what it says. And my friends, this is a huge mistake. You know, if, if our culture says God is this way, but God says He is this way, who are we to believe? So let us be a people who takes God at His word and believes what He says, even when that word is difficult, even when that word is hard for us to comprehend and put all the pieces together. And, 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 uh, and I would be the first to admit to you, it is hard. This is difficult to, to try to put it all together. But are we not subject, all of us, to the authority of Scripture? And is this book not God's self-revelation? Then let us accept God's own declaration of who He is and let's quit correcting it as His people. Secondly, what comfort and strength there is to know that God is in meticulous control of every bad thing that happens. I mean, if your instinct is when something bad happens to say, oh, God has nothing to do with this, <clears throat> well, my question is, well, then who does have something to do with it? Well, it's evil people, it's Satan, it's, it's malicious forces out there, it's, it's a nature that is out of control. Well, what hope is there in that? But if you know God is in control of this cancer, God is in control of this affliction, God is in control in this accident that takes place, and God is wise, God's, God's 
heart is pure and loving and wants his wants the best for his own people oh my goodness what strength there is to know that this affliction has been ordained by the wise and good counsel of God for the well-being of his people do you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata uh, this this uh, remarkable Christian woman who years ago I boy it's been a long time now as a young woman dove into a lake and uh, where, where she shouldn't have, her neck was broken and she has been quadriplegic the rest of her life. Well, the past 10 years or so, Johnny Erickson Tata has undergone uh, more pain than she used to have. It has been very difficult for her. She's been on stronger pain medication and, and it's just been harder and harder and harder in these past years. Well then, maybe you heard this uh, reported as well on, on the Christian news. She now has cancer. And th her response to this is just remarkable. Johnny Erickson Tata has such a strong confidence in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, and his love for her. That, her response to this was, oh my, how... How grateful I am that God loves me so much that he will stop at nothing to conform me to the likeness of Christ. She sees the cancer that has been brought to her as a means of God's goodness to help her grow, to be more what, what uh, God has, uh, has, has willed for her to be. The difference between that and saying, oh my, this horrible thing that's happened for no good purpose is the difference between hope and despair. So my friends, you may think that a strong doctrine of divine sovereignty is a fearful thing. In fact, it is a hope, strength, giving doctrine. <coughs> Finally, last application point. Consider your own relationship with God uh, with the image of a stool. Now there, oh, there was one somewhere up here, but uh, a stool, a three-legged stool. Now these three legs, you know, a stool with three legs, you've got to have all three there or the stool topples, right? We all know that's the case. And all three of those legs have to be solid. They have to be firm if they're going to hold the stool. So think of your own life before God as your, your faith in Him, your trust in Him, sitting upon that stool, trusting God as requiring three legs that uphold your trust in Him. One of those legs is an absolute, uh, unquestioning confidence in God's wisdom. He knows best, I don't. I mean... Honestly, one of the most important steps to take in the Christian life is this realization of how ignorant we really are and how prone we are to, to skew things and think wrongly about things and that our only hope is God granting us His knowledge and wisdom. As we saw this morning, it is infinitely His. So having an unquestioning confidence in the wisdom of God is the first leg. The second leg 
is an unquestioning confidence in the power of God. He can do whatever He wills. And the minute you, that you modify the doctrine of sovereignty to mean that, yes, God is in sovereign control, but that's just in a general sense. He creates the world and lets us do what, he wa- what we want, and, you know, and, and He sort of hands off with this. That's the view that many Christian people have of divine sovereignty. He, he, he sovereignly relinquishes sovereignty to us. Is the, is the view that many Christian people have. The minute you do that, then all of a sudden, that leg of the power of God, it's like it's been hollowed out. It might be there, but boy, you put weight on it, and it topples. The power of God that He can do whatever He chooses is just gloriously important to trust in God a strong view of divine sovereignty. And then the third leg that upholds our trust in God is the leg of His love for His people. Oh my, to have confidence and know the extent of the love of God for us is so great. It is so pure and so perfect. If you ever are tempted to doubt the love of God, remember what? the cross of Christ. Oh my, what love is displayed. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He who did, this is Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? Oh my, what love God has for you if you are a believer in Him. So much love that we cannot even comprehend it. Well, to realize this God who loves us perfectly is the God with infinitely perfect wisdom and unthwarted power to accomplish what He designs as best. What hope we have then with a God who is wise and sovereign and loving. May God grant to us lives of faith and trust because we know God is who He is. Let's pray together.